welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. They will say, where is this coming he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 4, New International Version Hello, I'm Victoria Kay. Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. We're very glad to be with you today as we continue the series we started a few weeks ago on Anchored by Truth. We are calling the series, 10 Facts Every Christian Needs to Know. In the studio today, we have R.D. Fierro. R.D. is an author and the founder of Crystal Sea Books. So far, we have covered five of the 10 facts, and we have done that over six episodes. R.D., do a quick review of the first five facts and maybe take a quick look at where we are and where we're going. Well, before we get started, I'd also like to say hello to all the listeners who are joining us here today. And I agree with you. I do think it is a good idea for us to do a status check at this point in the series because I truly think that this is one of the most important series that we've ever done on Anchored by Truth. Why is that? Well, to say that our society is in a bit of a mess today, that's probably an understatement. And I don't want to spend too much time just listing the litany of social and cultural issues that are afflicting our nation and the West in general, because those issues are apparent and well-known. But one of my observations has been for a long time that while we normally talk about economic problems or social problems or health problems, political problems, etc., all of those supposedly different kinds of problems, they really stem from a spiritual problem. And at the heart of that spiritual problem is that too many people, way too many people, are turning away from the only source of truth and light that can ever make a difference in the human heart, and that's the Bible. It's very safe to say that over the last 75 years or more, there has been a steady decline in the United States and in just about all Western cultures in biblical literacy. A matter of fact, most surveys of the general population tell us that far less than 10% of Americans have any real depth of knowledge about the Bible. And you believe that one reason for that is that today in America and the West, most people have come to regard the Bible as either being only partially true at best, an outright myth and fairy tale at worst. And part of what has caused this profound doubt is the counter-biblical narratives that have arisen over the last 150-plus years. These counter-biblical narratives have become so deeply embedded in our society that the counter-narratives hold much greater sway over our population than the transcendent truth of the Bible. And so far, we have talked about an unholy trinity of those deep narratives, deep time, uniformitarianism, and evolution. Geological uniformitarianism played key role in convincing people like Charles Darwin that the Earth was millions or billions of years old. This, in turn, allowed Darwin to extend those uniformitarian ideas beyond geology to biology, 
which turned into the great theory of evolution. So those three ideas became instrumental in creating widespread doubt or indifference to the scripture. Well, we pointed out last time that probably the most prominent atheist of the last three or four decades is Richard Dawkins. And lest anyone think that this dark, despotic chain of decline... Uh, that's easy for you to say. Dark, despotic chain of decline. Uh, not really. But just so that listeners don't think I'm being unduly melodramatic, even Richard Dawkins has connected Charles Darwin and his ideas with a lack of faith in God, what I am calling the dark, despotic chain of decline. Dawkins has written, and I quote now, Although atheism might have been logically tenable before Darwin, Darwin made it possible to be an intellectually fulfilled atheist. End quote. In other words, that very prominent atheist, Richard Dawkins, admits that without Charles Darwin, or at least without the ideas that Darwin popularized, someone wanting to be an atheist was continually confronted with some very troubling questions that their belief system couldn't answer. Without God, where does everything come from? Without God, who created life? And without God, who made a creature like man who is so different from all the other creatures that we see about us on the earth? The Bible clearly tells us that God created the heavens and the earth. The Bible tells us that God created man in his image. And the Bible describes God's original creative activity as taking place thousands of years ago, not millions or billions. So to replace God as being necessary to the world as we know it, these counter-narratives had to be created, circulated, and adopted. And they were, so successfully, that if anyone dares suggest that the earth is only thousands of years old, they are immediately attacked or ridiculed. And you think that this 10 Facts series is important because it represents the launching point for knocking that unholy trinity of dark, despotic narratives off their high, exalted perch. Exactly. So right now, most of the attention in our culture and our public narrative gets focused on what I call the secondary narratives. The narratives that we notice, such as the prominent social and political narratives, are secondary ones. Those narratives are things like the acceptability of abortion or same-sex marriage, the difference between so-called green energy and fossil fuels, about increased government control and regulation over our daily lives, etc. These secondary narratives emerge from and are dependent on the primary narratives. Primary narratives are the overarching paradigms that are so embedded in our culture that they're not even noticed anymore. And as we mentioned last time on Anchored by Truth, these primary narratives are like the framed art prints on your wall. Initially, when you put them up, you see them, you notice them, you think about them. But as time goes by, you notice them less and less. And eventually, you only notice those art prints when a visitor comes in and makes a comment about them. Well, deep time, evolution, and uniformitarianism, among others, are now primary narratives in our culture. The culture says that only fools and those who are mentally suspect would disagree with those narratives. So, as we mentioned last time, briefly put, Deep Time, along with its close cousin, the Big Bang, does away with the need for God as creator of the universe. The general theory of evolution does away with the need for God as the author of life. 
Biological uniformitarianism provides it the mechanism we need to explain the amazing biodiversity around us and does away with God as sustainer and multiplier. And geological uniformitarianism explains why the Earth's surface looks the way it does. And, in doing so, geological uniformitarianism does away with God as the administrator of justice. The big lesson that came out of the Genesis flood is that if you practice evil continually, God will wipe you off the face of the earth. That's a pretty potent lesson in how seriously God takes sin. The sum of these parts is that we have now done away with any need to acknowledge God, since we can explain the universe, life, and the surface of the earth without him, and since we've done away with God, we can now create our own standards for what constitutes personhood, family, man's dominion over the earth, etc. Right. So these primary so-called scientific narratives give rise to another primary moral or ethical narrative, and I want to spend a little bit of time talking about that today. And that narrative is sometimes phrased as homo mensura. According to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, homo mensura is a doctrine first propounded by the Greek philosopher Protagoras, which holds that humankind is the measure of all things. It is sometimes simply stated, as man is the measure. This means that everything is relative to human apprehension and evaluation, and that there is no objective truth. We've talked before on Anchored by Truth that we live in a postmodernistic world that not only denies that we can know absolute truth, but also that it even exists. Right. Nature abhors a vacuum. So once we did away with God, we had to have something to fill that void, that God void. So man stepped up and stepped in. And so as you've already noted, this freed man up to begin to define any of the transcendent standards that God had established for man. Man could now redefine those standards, do away with them entirely, or he could establish his own standards in their place, and he did so. In effect, man felt free to do away with the Ten Commandments because supposedly science had done away with the being who sent those commandments down the mountain. The problem is, of course, we didn't do away with God or His truth, and the house built on intellectual sand falls when the river of reality hits it, and we are seeing all around us the reality of what happens when man starts to see himself as, in fact, being the only measure by which all standards should be established or moral or ethical judgments be made. There's an old saying that ideas have consequences. Well, we can now see all around us the consequences that these primary narratives have had on communities and societies. And I think that a lot of people are waking up to the fact that they don't like these consequences. But, and this is a big but, those primary narratives are so deeply embedded within our culture that we've moved past the point where we can simply dismiss those primary narratives out of hand, as it were. It's no longer enough to say, like the old bumper sticker used to read, quote, the Bible says it, I believe it, end of discussion, end quote. Now, that may be true for many people. They do believe the Bible, and that's great. But when you simply proclaim, but you fail to explain, you haven't given that other person that you made that pronouncement to any reason 
that they should accept your proclamation. And even Jesus modeled this approach in providing a witness to the watching world. In the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verse 11, Jesus said, quote, Believe me when I say that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. If not, believe because of the things I do, unquote. And that's from the Good News Translation. Right. The predominant result of the primary narratives supposedly that come from science, these narratives of deep time, evolution, uniformitarianism, the primary result of those narratives was to get rid of the perceived need for God. And then this gave rise to a primary narrative that now man was the highest and really the only judge for how life was to be lived, or how the universe was going to be explained or how the affairs of man were going to be governed. So if we are going to get back to the world where God's transcendent truth supplants homo mensura, we can't just dispute the child narrative. We have to begin with the false parents. So in this 10 Facts series, we are challenging the so-called truth of those primary narratives that we supposedly get from science. And we've gone through five of the 10 facts so far. Right. But rather than moving on to fact number six today, I want to take a little more time and give a broader overview of what we're trying to accomplish in this series. With the first five of our ten facts, we have challenged the prevailing view of what might be termed natural history. And with the next five of our ten facts, I want to shift from just talking about natural history to talking about human history. And I specifically want to talk about how we can know that human history is not only consistent with what the Bible reports, but how certain events within human history actually help us confirm the Bible's supernatural origin. We have often said on Angered by Truth that any book that claims to be the Word of God must possess at least these attributes. First, the book must be consistent with what we know from making observations about the world around us. And I'll add that we're not just talking about observations of the physical universe, but also what we know about the history that has preceded us, both natural history and human history. Second, that book would have to give evidence of a supernatural point of origin. These criteria are important. You obviously wouldn't want to trust a book claiming to come from God that is manifestly inconsistent with observations you can easily make. Why trust a book's depiction of heaven if you can easily verify it can't even accurately tell you about earth? Why trust a prophecy about the future if what the book tells you about the past is inaccurate? Yes. So, with our first five facts out of our ten facts in this series, we demonstrated that the natural history related by the Bible is a reliable history. Now, in saying this, we're not trying to turn the Bible into some kind of a history or a science textbook. As the Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it, the principal purpose of the Bible is, quote, primarily teach what we are to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of us, end quote. In other words, the purpose of the Bible is to tell us about God and to transmit God's expectations for us to us. But as the Bible accomplishes its purpose, it has to necessarily relate observations about the world and the people upon whom it reports. So if those observations aren't accurate, 
we would have valid reasons for not accepting the trustworthiness, the reliability of the Bible. And notwithstanding man's attempt to dispute the Bible, the observations the Bible reports about natural history are accurate when we are honest with the science and honest with the Bible's literary constructs. The Bible does contain poetry, allegory, and even romantic poetry. No responsible Bible interpreter tries to construe non-historical sections literally. But one section of the Bible that does contain history is very often maligned. That is the opening chapters of Genesis. The opening chapters of Genesis contain a significant amount of material about natural history. And the point of our first five facts was to demonstrate that contrary to current attempts to defame that history, the natural history in the opening chapters of Genesis remains stubbornly accurate. And so the first fact that we discussed that every Christian needs to know is that science confirms that the universe and the earth are more likely thousands of years old. They are not millions or billions of years old. The second fact that we've covered is that the complexity of life makes it impossible for life to have arisen as a result of the random and chaotic collision of just atoms and molecules undirected or unorganized by intelligence. Well, this fact confirms the Bible's record of God creating all life starting on day three of the creation week. Now, fact number three is that there is solid scientific evidence that the tallest mountains on earth were underwater at one time. And this confirms the account of a worldwide flood that we find in chapters 6 through 8 of Genesis. The fourth fact we discussed is that the fossil record does not support any kind of gradual development of the many different types of plants and animals we see on earth. Instead, life on earth is fundamentally discontinuous at both a biochemical level as well as at the level of visible morphology. The first fossils we see in the rocks show plants and animals fully formed and functional. And even those phyla that are supposedly hundreds of millions of years old so closely resemble their modern counterparts that they are easily recognized. The fifth fact we have talked about is that the dating methods that are used to assign dates to rocks or fossils all depend on assumptions that are unproved and unprovable. Moreover, those methods have been shown to dramatically misstate certain specimens when we know when a particular sample of rock was formed by volcanic eruption. Right. So in our first five facts, we've concentrated on showing that the natural history that is related by the Bible is entirely reasonable when it's compared to the empirical observations that we make about the world that we live on. Well, we now want to turn our attention in this series to showing that the Bible is equally reliable when it comes to the facts that it chooses to relate about human history. Can you give us a preview of what we will be talking about? Well, I don't want to give too much away right now. I want people to come back and tune in and listen to the broadcast or the podcast. But let me just touch on one subject that will be relevant to what we're going to cover in the future. Geography. You know, just about every good study Bible has one or more maps that are a part of it. I think most people know that. I think they do too, but I kind of think they take it for granted. But in taking the fact that those Bibles contain maps, what they are unconsciously doing is acknowledging the reliability of the underlying historical text. 
Remember that those maps in our Bibles are being produced by modern users of the Bible. None of the Bible writers created maps and inserted them into their scrolls or their clay tablet or their codex. It's not that they couldn't have. Maps have been around for thousands of years. But that wasn't the Bible writer's purpose. They were simply preparing records or accounts, and those records or accounts were initially being prepared for the Jewish nation. But in the course of making those records, the Bible writers described names, dates, and places. Geographic places don't change. That doesn't mean that the boundaries of a particular kingdom or nation won't vary over time. The United States started out as 13 colonies, but today is 50 different states. But it is distinctly the same nation. But even while the nation is changing, New York City is still in the same place today as it was when the Dutch first bartered for the right to the property. But New York City was originally called New Amsterdam. The name was changed in honor of the Duke of York following the British acquisition of it from the Dutch. And that is a phenomenon that we see in the Bible. Names of places will change, although the place is obviously still in the same geographic location. Right. And the fact that we can know with a high degree of confidence what places those ancient names applied to means that modern scholars can construct accurate Bible maps. But they couldn't do that if the ancient Bible texts were unreliable. The reliability and the accuracy of the Bible's text when it comes to describing names, places, dates, things like that, that distinguishes the Bible from every other book that claims to be the Word of God. I see what you're saying. Biblical scholars often have discussions about the exact route that the Israelites took when they left Egypt. There are often three possible routes that are discussed. The Northern Coastal Route, the Bitter Lakes Route, or the Suez Route. But the fact that they can discuss various possibilities at all means that the description of the route in the book of Exodus is accurate enough that it corresponds to the known geography of that region. It corresponds well enough that there are multiple possibilities that could satisfy the described path. I suppose people might say that since we can't identify the exact route, that casts doubt on the accuracy of the text. But that makes as much sense as a friend asking you how you went from Macon, Georgia to Chattanooga, Tennessee, and then that friend is wondering whether you went straight through Atlanta or whether you took the beltway around Atlanta. You reply to your friend, well, I don't know because I was asleep and someone else was driving. Well, your friend wouldn't say to you that you then possibly couldn't have made the trip because you were not sure which route you took. The Bible record is proven true and accurate regardless of which of those three possibilities or another possibility is true. The point is that the Bible texts are so accurate that they permit modern scholars to identify the location of Bible events on modern maps. This, then, is a very powerful testimony to the accuracy of the Bible text that we have received. So one of the points that we will be making in the next five facts that we will be covering is that we can have confidence in the reliability and accuracy of the Bible's text, and that is true of both the Old and New Testaments. The book of Exodus, which is in the Old Testament, is accurate when it relates information pertaining to the geography of modern-day Israel and Egypt. The book of Acts is equally accurate when it relates information pertaining to the Roman Empire of the first century A.D. The books of Exodus and Acts are separated by approximately 1,500 years in terms of their time of preparation. But both books display the concern of the inspired Bible writers for accuracy, 
and fidelity. Right. So this example helps reinforce the fact that the Bible is accurate when it relates to human history as well as to natural history. And that's a point that we're going to continue to reinforce as we discuss our next five facts that every Christian needs to know. But in our next five facts, we are also going to introduce a couple of facts that demonstrate that the Bible not only reliably reports human history, but also has a supernatural point of origin. Many, many writers would be competent at relating history. There is an abundance of ancient historians, and while their reliability varies, there are still many of them who prepared very accurate accounts of certain historical events or people. But the Bible contains evidence that its writers weren't just working with the human gifts, as impressive as some might have been. The Bible contains evidence that there was a supernatural presence superintending and inspiring the records they were preparing. When God directed the individual writers to pick up their pen or stylus, he provided them information that would have been impossible for them to discern unless he was choosing to give them supernatural insights. And the point of this series and today's discussions is to help Christians guard against, as the Apostle Paul puts it, Satan's wiles. Ever since the Garden of Eden, Satan has used the same strategy. First, Satan casts doubt on God's goodness. Well, the next thing that Satan does is he denies God's truth. The next thing Satan does is he elevates the self-importance of man. And then, of course, the final thing that Satan does is he establishes a replacement for God's truth in the heart and mind of men. And that's what we see with these primary narratives that we've been talking about. The Bible tells us that the earth is thousands of years old, but then someone got the idea that in order to form the topographic features of the earth, you needed millions or hundreds of millions of years to form them. And then that was extended beyond geology to biology. And then we started inventing dating mechanisms based on unprovable assumptions, but we then asserted that anyone who doubted them must be doubting science. The next one was obvious, that God was no longer necessary, and therefore man had to become the measure of all things. As you've said, it's a dark, despotic chain of decline, and it's been going on for a long time. But in the 150 years since uniformitarian ideas began to seize popular culture, the decline has accelerated, and one of those primary narratives has become that science has proven that our world and universe can exist just fine without God. And when we start taking a hard look at the available evidence, our brains confirm what our hearts already know. There is no coherent explanation for the universe that doesn't include God. This sounds like a great time to go to the Lord in prayer. Today, let's listen to a prayer that we and our friends and neighbors would set aside all of the narratives that our culture pushes and instead return to the inerrant, infallible, and inspired worship of the one true God. Prayer for Restoration of the Worship of the One True God Lord of Destiny, God of Holiness, You ordained the fate of men and nations before the cornerstone of creation was laid. You are blameless in all your acts and commands, and therefore what you ordain must come to pass. Who among men can resist your will? 
what you sovereignly declare will happen. We rejoice that our hope rests in the power and mercy of an almighty God and not in lesser beings. Lord, you know far better than we the blight that has come upon this nation. We have turned from honoring your name and seeking your will to self-exaltation and celebrating our rebellion. We cannot imagine how this must grieve you and give you justifiable cause for rebuke and reproof. We pray that you would raise up in our midst godly men and women who will be the leaders and teachers in a national renewal. We know that you have preserved a faithful remnant for yourself because you have assured us that the gates of hell could not prevail against your church. We praise you that Christ Jesus himself makes intercession for us while he sits at your right hand. We praise him and offer this and all prayers in his holy name. Amen. Amen. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com, where we're not perfect, but our boss is.